1: large-scale cyber attack against Ukrainian websites looks like an influence operation and Russian intelligence services are the prime suspects. The FSB raids are evil. The White House Open Source Software Security Summit looks towards software bills of material. Muddy water exploits log for shell. The DPRK is working to steal cryptocurrency. Caleb Barlow shares the consequences of the 3G network shutdown. Our guest is John Lehman from Intellectual Point with programs that help military veterans transition to the cybersecurity industry and honor among thieves and spies. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, January 14th, 2022. Reuters reports that a massive cyber attack hit Ukrainian government websites yesterday. Websites operated by the Ukrainian cabinet and at least seven ministries were affected. Some of the defacements told their Ukrainian audience to be afraid and expect the worst. The attacks seem to be simple defacements, an influence operation, and not the data destruction and doxing, the message claims. Note the implicit attempt to suggest that Poland and Ukraine have a historical dispute over Ukraine's western territories. The Moscow Times reports that Ukraine's SBU said that services had been restored to normal within hours of the attacks. While it's impossible at this stage to rule out hacktivism or provocation by some third party, the Ukrainian foreign ministry points to the obvious suspect, Russian intelligence services. A spokesman told Reuters, quote, "...it's too early to draw conclusions, but there is a long record of Russian cyber assaults against Ukraine in the past." Quote. Talks between the U.S. and Russia and NATO and Russia have so far not produced public signs of progress. The Baltic Times reports that Lithuanian President Gitanas Nauseda said after a conversation on the talks with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg that successful diplomacy would require reciprocity of a kind that's not on evidence from the Russian side. Progress can, quote, only take place on the basis of reciprocity and not in the language of demands and ultimatums, which is unacceptable, end quote. At yesterday's White House press conference addressing the talks, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said, quote, There are no dates set for any more talks. We have to consult with allies and partners first. We're in communication with the Russians and we'll see what comes next. End quote. There may, however, have been some conciliatory Russian gestures toward the West. Bloomberg notes that there seems to have been a decline, a tapering of coverage of Ukraine by Russian state media. Quote, there is now a renewed diplomatic flurry with talks between U.S. and Russian officials, again in Geneva followed by other discussions, including a NATO-Russia council meeting, dialing back the heat in state media could be a move to see if such talks bear fruit, quote. Bloomberg's report reads this sign with cautious optimism, since no such quiet period was observed during the run-up to Russia's 2014 invasion of Crimea. More interesting is a raid Russia's FSB has conducted against the r ransomware gang, Russia's Interfax News Agency reported this morning that the FSB has liquidated the gang in a series of arrests. An official statement said, quote, The FSB of Russia has established the full composition of the R-Evil criminal community and the involvement of its members in the illegal circulation of means of payment and documentation of illegal activities has been carried out, end quote. The FSB said it had conducted the raids at the Appeal of Competent U.S. Authorities. The raids netted not only 14 arrests but $600,000 and €500,000 in cash as well as computers, crypto wallets used to commit crimes, and 20 luxury cars, all of which are said to be ill-gotten. Heightened tension between Russia and NATO over the near abroad come during a period of heightened concern about the security of open-source software that's been driven by discovery of Log4Shell and other vulnerabilities in the Apache Software Foundation's widely used Log4J library. The White House offered a preliminary readout of this week's Open Source Software Security Summit, during which government and industry officials met to discuss ways of shoring up the security of widely used open-source software. The discussion was given salience by this week's warnings from the U.S. intelligence community that there was a risk of nation-state attacks exploiting issues with that and other open-source products. Both government and industry sources see cooperation on implementing an effective system of software bills of materials as an important first step in the right direction. As Duo Securities Decipher points out, U.S. Cyber Command's attribution Wednesday of Muddy Water to Iran's Ministry of Intelligence and Security included the posting of 17 samples of the threat actor's attack tools to virus total. The comment that accompanied the samples emphasized Muddy Water's use of DLL side-loading in its operations— E Security Planet summarizes Checkpoint's conclusion that Muddy Water in its current operations is actively exploiting Log4Shell. Lest one think that the FSB's raid on our evil means that the salad days of state tolerated Russian cybercrime are over, consider Krebs on Security's account of the work being done by the access broker known as Wazawaka, a numero in Russophone cybercrime fora. Come on, rob and get dough, Wazawaka advertised in the Exploit Forum back in 2020, inviting crooks to buy access to a big Chinese company and show them who's boss. He's still going strong, and he says he adheres to the communitarian principle that data taken in double extortion scams shouldn't be resold. Rather, it should simply be posted for general use in the criminal-to-criminal marketplace should the victim fail to pay the ransom. Kaspersky reports on the activities of a group it calls Blue Norhoff and identifies as a subunit of North Korea's Lazarus Group. Blue Norhoff's current campaign, Snatch Crypto, is aimed at various companies that, by the nature of their work, deal with cryptocurrencies and smart contracts, DeFi, blockchain, and the fintech industry. An NBC News report puts Pyongyang's take in cryptocurrency theft last year at almost $400 million dollars with Ethereum holdings particularly affected. We return for a moment to that FSB raid on the R-Evil gang. There's video being tweeted around that purports to be an FSB video press handout. It's pretty good in a copsy sort of way. Right, like what with the FSB muscle and windbreakers breaking down doors into some dingy-looking apartment's Coloring perps, some of whom are cuffed while face down in their underwear. And who doesn't like that? And then going through their swag. The swag seems to be mostly U.S. and Russian currency. We saw lots of pictures of Benjamin Franklin. But it was mostly cash, and it was fanned out really cinematically as they rolled the bills through automatic counters. We were also struck by how mingy the hood's apartments looked. They need a makeover. Gangland should watch Hillary Farr's Tough Love over on HGTV. I mean, come on, Hoods, put a picture on the wall. Think more about going open concept. You're not an undergraduate anymore, Malchik. Anywho, the arrests raise interesting questions like, is there a reward for something in all this? Recorded Future's Alan Liska, we hear, has wondered aloud if the FSB is going to claim a $10 million reward. So we ask you, listeners... What would you do? Should the FSB gunsels in the video hit up the U.S. State Department under the Rewards for Justice program, or is this all to be written off as professional courtesy? And to all the our evil goons who still may be out there, a hardy Rukinazad on behalf of whatever Russo-American law enforcement cooperation there may be. Finally, you've probably seen the ads for TV coverage of the Beijing Winter Olympics. The Belgian Olympic and Inter Federal Committee has advised athletes to leave their mobile devices and phones home, lest they be subject of cyber espionage. The Chinese Embassy in Brussels has published a Q&A on the warning that reads in part: quote, "The claim that relevant Belgian personnel traveling to China may be at risk of cyber espionage is completely unfounded, and the worries are unnecessary. The Chinese government is a firm defender of cybersecurity." And firmly opposes any form of cyber espionage and cyber attack activities. End quote. So there you go. Nothing to see here. Move on. A quick program note for our listeners this coming Monday, January 17th, is Martin Luther King Day, and we'll be observing the federal holiday with a brief hiatus from publication and podcasting. The Cyber Wire will be back as usual on Tuesday, January 18th. And in the meantime, we offer our greetings to all on a day that commemorates the life and work of Dr. King. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It's well established that there's a strong demand for qualified employees in cybersecurity, with some reporting millions of open positions around the world. And every year, there are thousands of people wrapping up their service in the U.S. military, looking to transition to meaningful work in the civilian world. Seems like a potential pipeline there, right? John Lehman is Senior Director of Veterans Services at IT training company Intellectual Point, and he joins us to highlight some of the programs in place to help make that connection.
0: There's two programs that we primarily work with at intellectual point, and I'm not going to do a hard pitch on intellectual point, but I will discuss these two programs that deal specifically with the veteran affairs. One is the VRAP program, and the VRAP program was originally created during the first Gulf War, and it was Created to assist veterans to go into different career fields that are needed within the job sector. And most of those jobs are derived from case studies that are in the market. So, truck driving is one of those careers that they were trying to get veterans to pivot into because there were so many truck drivers that had retired during the COVID event. There's a lot of folks that are retiring out of the IT. So this is where the VRAP program was revamped and stepped up on the federal side of the house to allow veterans to pivot into that program. And it was one of the programs that I had come through Intellectual Point originally, and I came through the Dev SecOps program, our DevOps program. And the DevOps program consists of getting a Security Plus certified ethical hacker and Splunk, and this allows you to kind of pivot in the marketplace if you're not familiar with IT to a point where you can step it up or you can step down, go to like a help desk position, or you can uh, go into a SOC, depending on what your understanding your skill set is. So that's a wonderful program. The other program is called Vet Tech. And VetTech was originally started in 2017, and it was designed to allow veterans to do continuing education with technology because there was such a noted loss of IT professionals over the last couple of years, and there's not enough infrastructure that's there to support oncoming and and upcoming IT professionals within the federal government and also in the civilian sector. Companies and also the federal government are not investing in the personnel like they should to be able to bolster our critical infrastructure. That's my personal opinion from some of the observations that that I've seen. And for the most part, it's, it's pretty successful. The main issues that we have with it is that veterans that did have security clearances in the past are not able to retain their security clearances, say like a Senator or a Congressman does after they leave the uniform which I think is another initiative that needs to be looked at on a deeper level. And two, there's gonna be a backlog for up to 24 months to three years. And that's something that we need to look at in the cybersecurity realm, because if we lack the critical infrastructure and we lack the personnel that we can possibly spin up to the point where they would be able to fill in some of the senior level positions, because a lot of it has to deal with aptitude. You know, how, how hungry are you to get the job done?
1: In your experience working with these folks, to what degree does the experience they had in the military, the training, the mindset that they leave the service with, how does that align to the skills and the, the type of thinking that's going to serve them well in an IT career?
0: Oh, this is such a great question. I'm, I'm glad that you asked it. Okay, so each... Military MOS or I'm using this because it's an Army term and or in the Air Force AFSC and the Navy, it's just a rating. Each of these positions has specific KSAs or knowledge skills and assessments that you have to be able to fulfill once you get into these positions. And when you're dealing with your junior level military folks, your enlisted folks, they are task oriented. And they are able to be able to take information and run with that. You know, if you tell them you need to do X, Y, and Z, they're really good at taking direction and following in that direction. And then for your officers, the officers that are getting out, they know how to multitask and they know how to deal with a lot of stuff under stress. Soldiers in general know how to deal with information under stress, but particularly within the cyber realm, The officers are primed for this type of environment because they understand the corporate structure from the way that everybody that I work with, for the most part, everybody that I work with is truly, honestly wanting to grow in a way that is meaningful for their future. And I just enjoy that portion of working with soldiers and Marines and seamen and airmen again, is because there's that sense of camaraderie. And that's also something that they, these people bring to the workplace, that if you get two or more veterans around, there's a sense of camaraderie that comes along with being somebody that's prior to uniform. And at the end of the day, it's the brotherhood. You know, it's it's what you've taken away from the uniform that nobody can take away from you.
1: That's John Lehman from Intellectual Point. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you get access to this and many more extended interviews. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? And I am pleased to be joined once again by Caleb Barlow. Caleb, it is always great to have you back to the show. You know, there has been uh, no shortage of stories about the transition to 5G and uh, certainly lots of promotion about that. We've seen uh, people uh, churning up conspiracy theories about 5G. Our friends over in the UK have had troubles with vandalizing uh, 5G towers and, and so on and so forth. You know, one of the things that I didn't realize was happening was at the beginning of this year, they were winding down 3G service, and there are some unintended consequences of that transition. What's going on here? Well, I, I mean, like you said, that you, you can't get
2: past not only the 5G real information that is coming, but also the misinformation that it's going to be used for government mind control and all kinds of other crazy <laughs> right, things. Right. So so the problem here is no one's paying attention to 3G. And historically, you know, this might have meant that grandma needed to upgrade her flip phone when, you know, it was time to transition technologies, but the difference this time is 3G is being used by a lot of things other than phones. Mm -hmm. So this was a widespread data platform used by IoT devices, including cars for things like navigation, weather, and traffic, as well as a whole lot of IoT remote sensors, and Probably the the biggest thing that I'm concerned about is 3G was routinely used as a backup to traditional networks in the event of a failure. So the challenge with 3G literally being shut off in the very near future is that we are often unaware of where these devices are, they need to be upgraded, or they're simply going to stop working. And worse yet, many of them support life safety systems, Hmm. things like emergency call boxes, in-vehicle crash notification systems and burglar alarms.
1: Yeah, you know, I was uh, at my bank recently, and uh, there was a technician there. And I, while I was uh, waiting for the tellers, I struck up a conversation with him. And he said you know, he was there upgrading their systems. Uh, their alarm system backups were all 3G. And so uh, he said he's been busier than ever going from bank to bank uh, getting this done before they throw the switch.
2: That's right. So the FCC, if you go to their website, does have a list of products that are likely impacted by the changes. And it's, it's all the things you could imagine, medical devices, tablets, smartwatches, home security systems. I even got a notice from a car manufacturer that a car I have that's not that old, all of its you know network-connected navigation, whether it's all going to stop working here mm. in a couple of months. And what was most interesting about that notice is There's no alternative. There's no upgrading this. It's just going to stop. So I think, you know, the folks listening to this call that are in IT or security, there are a few things you really need to go look Mm -hmm. at. So if you have something that's actively being monitored, the good news there is like, for example, your home alarm, hopefully the alarm company is sending you notice that you're not ignoring, going, hey, we got to upgrade this. It's more the things you haven't thought about, like, You know, if you've got a remote location with IoT sensors, very good chance the backup, you know, is a cellular 3G connection, and that's got to get upgraded. So when does all this go down? Well, AT&T has said that it's going to start shutting down 3G networks in February, like next Mm -hmm. month. Verizon's going to pull the plug at the end of the year. T-Mobile and Sprint are starting around March. I don't get the impression there's going to be one day where it all goes off. So it's almost worse in that this stuff's just going to start rolling out. Various towers are going to come down. And they have to do this because they need the spectrum and they need the space on the towers.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm wondering, uh, you know, or some organizations could potentially find themselves saying, gosh, you know, we haven't had any alert signals from our, our devices out on the field. Things must be going great. Oh, that, that's exactly the problem, right? I mean, a
2: lot of these devices are in scenarios where, Because remember, when 3G was deployed, it was really expensive in, you know, wind back, well, almost a decade or whatever it was, right? That network time was really expensive. So the way most of these things were built is they only called if there was a problem. And You're going to be sitting there a year and a half from now going, hey, that remote sensor's working great, and maybe it is, and then maybe there's a power outage or some reason you lose traditional network connectivity. You're not going to hear from it. And I think we're going to have a lot of scenarios where— the pump, the valve, the car don't work. I mean, here's the other scenario. You get in a car accident and you used, you know, systems like OnStar or other things that would call back. It's not going to call. It's just not going to work.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if there's a market opportunity here for a 3G to 5G converter box. Get on that, Caleb.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, the good, news, the good news, I think, for the cars— is if, you know, and and I'll use my car as an example, right? It's, what, a 2014. The navigation system on it kind of is kind of blah now relative to what I can use on my phone. So it's not going to be the end of the Mm. world, but it is kind of a giant pain. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. All right, well, a good reminder to go out there and uh, check your device inventory uh, when these sort of transitions happen. Caleb Barlow, thanks for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at the CyberWire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's episode of Research Saturday and my conversation with researcher Alyssa Knight, along with Carl Matson from No Name Security. We're discussing Alyssa's research concerning API vulnerabilities in U.S. banking applications. That's Research Saturday. Check it out.